Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Brothers and sisters, it is good to be back with you again. This morning we will be continuing to make our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We're looking this morning at Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. Again, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler." who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then then when Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, The star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Amen. You may be seated. Please join me once again in a time of prayer. O Father, as we come to your word this morning, how we ask that you would give us eyes to see that you would give us ears to hear, that we might understand the things which have happened concerning your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, O Lord, that you would be gracious to us and help us to see that this one who has come is in fact a great king, and it is right and fitting that all of the earth would come and bring their tribute to him. Give us humble hearts, O Lord, to submit ourselves to the, the rule and the authority of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Do this, O Lord, through the preaching of your word. We ask it in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Well, life is often full of ironies. Very often, things that we do not expect to happen, in fact, happen. And there can be kind of silly ironies that we see in this world, like doctors who have particularly unhealthy uh, habits, who have to, to tell others to be healthy themselves when they're not healthy, or maybe a fireman whose house burns down, things like that, things that are ironies. But the scriptures also contain a number of ironies, and they are uh, much more serious, not 
uh, silly things that we see in this life. For instance, there is uh, a very strong irony in John chapter 11. After Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, the chief priests and the scribes take counsel together about what they are to do. And ultimately, they're going to decide that they want to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember what Caiaphas, the high priest, says. He says, do you not know? Don't you recognize that it is better for one person to die than that the whole nation perish? Now, he's saying this because he wants the council to, to take action against Christ. He says, it's better that this man die. We kill this man and then all the rest of us will be saved. But John points out it's highly, highly ironic that he says this, not realizing that by his very actions, he will bring about the death of the one, which will also mean the salvation of all his people. That in a sense in which he does not realize at all, in a very ironic sense, this one will die so that the entire nation will not perish. It is a great irony. And very often in the scriptures, God uses ironies to be a a strong warning for his people. And that's really what's going on here. In this passage, we have Matthew giving us a record of something that's both a fulfillment of prophecy, that there would be people from the east who would come and they would bring their tribute to the coming king, the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, through the use of irony, it is a very strong warning for his people. Now, remember where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. It's been a a few weeks since I've been here, but remember, we've looked at Matthew chapter 1, and first we looked at the genealogy, which showed Christ's human origins, that he is both the son of David and the son of Abraham, the one who will bring back his people from captivity. And in this sense, he is a true man, though he is, of course, more as the promised Messiah. Then we looked at his miraculous birth, being conceived by the Holy Spirit, which shows that he is not just man, but also God. He is, in fact, God who is with us and Jehovah who saves. Here we have God himself testifying about the truth of his son and bringing others into this knowledge of who his son is. Remember that the entire gospel will hinge upon Peter's great confession in chapter 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And everything up to that point is is written in order to show God's people that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And here, very ironically, it's not the Jews, the people of God, who get it. It's not the Jews who get to be the first people to come and worship Christ. It is these Gentiles, these outsiders, who are the first to come and to bring gifts of tribute to the king. It is very ironic. And what we see from this text and what Matthew is trying to show us is that God has given testimony concerning his son. God himself has done this. But this testimony has been rejected and is often rejected by his own people and yet accepted by those who are not his people. God bears witness to his own son and this testimony is rejected by his people but is received by those who are not his people. And this is very often the case even down to our own day. Now we'll look at this passage Under three headings. First, we'll consider God's testimony concerning his son, which we see primarily in the star, the star which led the Magi or the wise men to the West to worship the Christ in Jerusalem. Next, we'll look at the unbelief of those who were God's people. We see that primarily through the inquiries 
which Herod makes. So we got the star, the testimony, and the inquiries. And then thirdly, we'll look at the faith of the outsiders, which we see primarily in the gifts which are brought by the wise men. So again, three points. We'll look at the star, the inquiries, and the gifts, showing God's testimony, the unbelief of those who should have believed, and the belief of those whom you would not expect to believe. So look with me again, first at verses 1 and 2, as we consider God's testimony concerning his own son and what it leads to. Notice what happens. We were, we we're told that this is taking place sometime after Jesus was born. We do not know exactly uh, how far uh, after. It's likely uh, not immediately after. You know, the, the common idea that um, gets tossed around that the, the wise men were there right when Jesus was born is, is uh, not true. We, we know that from um, what comes later, what Lord willing, we'll look at next week about Herod's actions to try to destroy this child. He, he names all the children to and under as those whom he will destroy, which means this, this may be months or maybe even up to a year afterwards. Uh, but there are wise men here who have come from the east. They have come to Jerusalem and they very much expect when they get there that they will see a child who has been born, who is also the Christ, who is the, the long-awaited king of his people. That's what they're expecting to find when they, get, when they get to Jerusalem. Now, there are a couple of questions that we'd have to ask in order to understand the text. It's a very strange thing that these wise men come and they are expecting to find such a great thing. First, we have to ask, where do they come from? Well, the text says that they come from somewhere in the east. And we don't know exactly where. Some commentators think Babylon. Others think Persia. But regardless, if it's either of those locations, they would have been coming from a place that would have been influenced by believing Jews. This would have been important. They would have had access to the scriptures. They would have had access to the Old Testament scriptures. Remember, Daniel himself was a a, uh, prominent uh, counselor to both Babylonian and Persian kings. Esther was the queen of Persia at one point. And so these, these places in exile as the Jews were sent off in the exile, they did uh, expose the Gentiles to the word of God. And so these these wise men were probably at least familiar with the prophecies that had been made about the Lord Jesus Christ. They would have understood that there was a king that the Jews were anticipating and that this king would be the ruler of the world and that he would be the savior of his people. Now, the next question is, how could they possibly have known to come to Jerusalem? Well, it's probably a combination of these prophecies which had been made and direct revelation from God. We know that God did speak to these uh, particular wise men. We see that in verse 12, for instance, God warns them in a dream not to go back to Herod. So there's no reason to think that God couldn't have also told them that they are to follow this particular star as it leads them to the West. And there are a number of prophecies that have been made about the Lord Jesus Christ to which this, um, this event is a fulfillment of and which point to this particular event. For instance, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, there is a prophecy that there will be one who is a son of Judah, who will have the scepter, he will be a king, and tribute will be brought to him. So from the very beginning, one of the things that we see of the Lord Jesus Christ is that he will be a king who will receive tribute. Later in Numbers 24, in Balaam's fourth oracle, which is about the Lord Jesus Christ and about 
the coming kingdom. This king, it's, there's a lot of connections with Genesis 49. We're meant to read them together, I think. And this king is said to be both a scepter and a star. He's a star who will receive tribute. So here we again have the same connections. There's a star that rises and tribute which is brought. But probably the greatest connection between our story here in the Old Testament is in Isaiah chapter 60, which we read earlier. Notice in that text, there is a light that rises over a particular place, which is Zion. And remember, the the Magi have come here from the east because they've seen a light that's risen and they've come to Jerusalem, where Zion is, fully expecting to see this king. And in that text, in Isaiah 60, when the light rises, all of the sons and daughters of Zion come from afar. All the Gentiles come bringing their tribute. And one of the things that's said that's brought is gold and incense. So there in Isaiah 60, the light rises over Jerusalem. Gentiles come from the east, bringing gold and incense as tribute to build up Zion and to give that tribute to the king. It's exactly what we're seeing here. This this text is a fulfillment of these very things. And the, the wise men may have been familiar with these prophecies in the scriptures, But even if they weren't necessarily through their own study, God would have communicated it to them. And so they come from the east in order to find this great king. And the last question we need to ask about the Magi and the the wise men is what it is they actually saw. What did they see in the sky? There have been some that have proposed that what they saw in the sky was a, a normal star that uh, perhaps it was um, a conjunction of you know, Jupiter, Venus, the two brightest planets that you can see, and some other star, something like that. And this would have led um, these wise men to the West. Well, there are a number of problems with that theory. The first is that it appears that, as amazing as this scene was, only these particular wise men got it. No, nobody else seems to have understood that this was a sign, which means it's it was something more than just something that people naturally noticed. There seems to have been um, at least a divine message that was given to, sh- to show them. And if that's the case, there's no reason to think that it wasn't a supernatural light. But also, the light appears over a particular place in the west. They see it from the east. It sort of says they saw the star in the east while they were in the east. And this star guides them to the west. Now, the problem with saying that it's a natural star is that no star stays in the west. All stars, like the sun, rise in the east and set in the west. So any star that you would look at in, in the night that, that leads you to the west, in a few hours, if not sooner, it'll be gone. And a star that in the beginning of the night leads you to the east will at the end of the night lead you to the west. And even more than that, notice in verses 9 and 10 about this star. It seems to have disappeared for a time. The star leads them to Jerusalem. It disappears. The wise men leave. The star reappears and is so precise that it's able to distinguish between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, which are only a couple miles apart, and even to lead these wise men to the very house, the very house where the Lord Jesus Christ was at that very time. Now, if, if you could somehow think of a way that a star could lead someone to the West, surely no star could do this. 
This was not an ordinary light which appeared in the sky. This was a divine supernatural light. God himself was testifying to the birth of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God himself made sure that these wise men came in fulfillment of prophecy to bring their gifts as tribute to the king. And when we, we, when we see the supernatural character of the story, we realize the significance of this testimony. It's not just some happenstance. This is the testimony of God himself concerning his son. God saw to it that this light would arise in fulfillment of the prophecies which he had made in Genesis, in Numbers, and in Isaiah. And so here this morning, as we consider what God has done to bear witness to the coming of his son and the birth of his son, which he testifies here that he is the coming king, we have to ask, do you believe in this testimony? Now, if you are tempted not to believe, or if you do not believe in this testimony, consider the weight of unbelief at this point. You are not disobeying the testimony of men. You're not, for instance, just saying you do not believe in my testimony concerning the Lord Jesus Christ or the testimony of some other person who can argue well from the scriptures. You are saying you do not believe in the testimony of God himself. God himself in this passage has shown a divine spotlight onto his son. He has supernaturally attested to the fact that this is the coming Christ. And if you will not believe God on this point, it is not your word against mine, but it is your word against his. God himself has borne witness to the coming of his son. He has done it with this supernatural star, a divine spotlight, which he has placed on his son after his birth. Well, here we see the surprising unbelief of the Jews after this, which begins in verse 3. Notice in verses, and this will be in verses 3 to 8, we see the response of God's people, particularly Herod the king. But notice it's not just Herod. Notice in verse 3, these, these wise men have come from the east. They have come asking where the Lord Jesus Christ is because he's been born king of the Jews. They've seen his star. And Herod hears this, and he was troubled. But notice not just Herod, but all Jerusalem with him. Both Herod and Jerusalem are troubled by what they hear. Now, it makes perfect sense for Herod to have been troubled by what he has heard. He is a tyrant of a king, a very, very wicked man who has done, who did all kinds of terrible things in his life. Um, for instance, he, he had a number of people in his family put to death that he suspected were trying to overthrow him. Uh, even his wife, I should say his wife, his, his favorite wives, because he had, he had many of his wives, he actually had her executed on suspicion of adultery, which um, was never proven one way or another. He even at one point when he was leaving his, uh, his place where he ruled, um, left someone in charge and commanded that if he were not to come back alive, that this person was commanded to kill this wife so that she would not belong to another. And that was his way of showing his affection and love for her. And so we see with Herod, it makes perfect sense. He's a paranoid king who wants nothing more than to stay on the throne at all costs. So when he hears that another king has been born, and this one is the king, the one that's been promised in the scriptures, he is, of course, terrified. 
But notice Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem is terrified. This is a very surprising response. Why are they not exceedingly joyful? Why, why can't they be described like the wise men later on in the passage when they see the star again, that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy for their long-awaited king had come? Many during this time were looking for the coming Messiah. There was, there was an atmosphere of looking Could this person be it? Could this person be it? There was an anticipation that perhaps this was the time. It was very prominent in the first century. But when the the Jews in Jerusalem hear of these things, they are troubled. Why would this be? Well, perhaps they they realize that Herod being so troubled would be bad for them. That if they were to go out to this king, they themselves could be cut down. They knew that Herod was murderous and that he would do anything he could to stay on the throne. And perhaps you could say, well, that's understandable. It's understandable that they would be troubled at the thought of what Herod would do. But is this excuse sufficient for them? Is there any excuse that's sufficient for this kind of unbelief? I ask you, where were those men and women who were like Daniel? Who, when the decree was made in Persia, in a foreign land, that no one was to pray to any except for the king? continued to pray just as he always had and was thrown into the lion's den, would rather die than betray his God. Or where was the faith of men like his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who did not bow down and worship idols and who said to the king, listen, we have no reason to answer you, answer you in this. My God, our God is able to save us. And even if he doesn't, and we die and perish for this, we will not serve your idol. Where were those who were willing to do that? There seemed to have been none. None of them. They're all terrified at perhaps what Herod would do or what the repercussions would be for this new Christ who was born. They're all terrified. Now, this leads to Herod making a couple of inquiries. A couple of inquiries. He inquires of two things. The place of the birth of Christ and also the time. He asks the place of the of the chief priests, the scribes, uh, members of the Sanhedrin. He calls the highest religious authorities to ask, where is the Christ to be born? And he also wants to know when the Christ was born. And he asks the wise men this. And these are the two pieces of information that he needs in order to try to destroy this Christ who has come. If he knows where, he knows how old, he can go and he can kill all the children who are that age, which... We will, Lord willing, see next week that he, in fact, does. So notice this first inquiry, the inquiry of the Sanhedrin. The highest religious authorities, he asked them, where is this child to be born? Where is the coming Christ to be born? And they say, in verses 5 and 6, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, This is coming from Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the Sanhedrin, the highest authority of the Jews, knowing their Old Testament very well, immediately give the correct answer as it had been prophesied. Micah's uh, testimony was that the coming Christ will be born in Israel. Bethlehem. Now, this is a very, very significant admission, as one commentator has uh, rightly pointed out, 
that this is this is not just anyone saying that the Christ was to be born in Bethlehem, but this is the highest authorities of the Jews giving their interpretation of the scriptures themselves. And we see then from this text that from the, the very context of Micah itself, this passage is about the Messiah. Now, if you're not as familiar with Micah, let me encourage you to come back for the evening worship. You may know that I've been preaching through uh, Micah, and we will be able to see in the coming weeks as I continue to make my way through the book that this was, in fact, a Messianic prophecy. And you can see very, very clearly from the context that there's no other way to interpret it. It's a very, very strong Messianic text. So if you're not as familiar with Micah, let me encourage you to come back during the evening worship and and hear from Micah chapter 2 as we continue to make our way through that book. But notice here what this commentator has to say about the, the significance of this. He says this, The very great value of this providence Matthew felt when he wrote this gospel for Jewish readers. Every Jew down to this day is faced by Micah 5.2 and the Sanhedrin's answer to Herod. The Messiah is an individual, not the Jewish nation. So one of the interpretations that the Jews have given since this time. So in order to evade that this passage is speaking of Christ. His birth must be in Bethlehem and nowhere else. If Jesus is not this Messiah, then let the Jews say what Micah 5.2 means and let him contradict both his, this prophet and his own Sanhedrin if he will. That is to say that this prophecy was so clear that all of the religious authorities in Jesus' day, when they did not have a reason due to bias against the Lord Jesus Christ to deny that it was about the Messiah, readily said this text is about the Messiah. It is so very clear. What we see from this and what we see from many other texts is that the scriptures themselves show us that they are the word of God and that everything in them is both true and centered on the Lord Jesus Christ. All the scriptures from beginning to end testify to this, that Jesus Christ truly is the Messiah. All the things which have been promised of him have come true. And there is really no ground at all. There is no ground at all for unbelief. There is no way to argue rationally that the scriptures themselves contradict in some way. The the answers are readily there. There are no contradictions. All of it is about Christ. And you have to go through uh, very unusual interpretive measures in order to try to erase the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ in the scriptures and the prophecies which have come true about him. And so, this is the inquiry that's made. Herod now knows that the Christ will be born in Bethlehem. He asks the wise men then, at what time the star appeared? We don't give, we're not given the the answer there, but we know from his later actions, perhaps, you know, within the last two years, maybe a year, something like that, Herod probably went above the, the time that was given so that he could be sure that the child was destroyed. Um, we don't get, we're not given the answer, but he now has in the providence of God all that he thinks he needs in order for his actions to be taken against the Christ. All of his inquiries show his radical unbelief and his hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what caused this? 
Why was he so radically against the Lord Jesus Christ that he would even try to kill him when he was a little baby? Well, it was his selfish ambition, was it not? He wanted the throne. And here we have a very important principle that's true in every age. And that is that you cannot serve yourself and God. There is no room for selfish ambition in the Christian life. If you are seeking only things for yourself in this life, you will end up acting exactly like Herod. Because there is always a conflict between what God calls us to and us receiving only great things for ourselves. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ himself said. If anyone were to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And here are the Jews, not just Herod, but all the Jews are really unwilling to do that at this point. They are unwilling to face the consequences that would come for their claiming of Christ. And it's because they are clinging too much for things for themselves. Following the Lord Jesus Christ necessitates a laying down of our own lives. And you might think that this is a very wicked example that is unusual. But if you have this type of sin pattern that you only pursue things for yourself, you will end up acting against the Lord Jesus Christ in your life. You will pursue him and and his church. You will hate him because all that he stands for is in the way of you receiving the things that you are seeking for yourself. This is the unbelief that Matthew paints in verses 3 to 8. But we see also that God protects the Lord Jesus Christ, does he not? That Herod believes that he can put this child to death. And humanly speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ at this point is a baby. In some sense, he is helpless. He really needs, in order for him to be to continue, the protection of others. He needs his parents to look after him and that sort of thing. And here God himself protects his son from death in verse 12. When the Magi leave, they are divinely warned to go to, to not to return to Herod and to depart to their own country another way. God himself protects and preserves the child. So there we have the testimony of God. We have the unbelief of the Jews and particularly of Herod. Notice, though, the faith of the wise men, which we have seen in some regards in verses 1 and 2. But notice again, as they go out from Herod, that they bring gifts. Notice even the even their long journey shows a great faith. We don't know how long it took them uh, to make this journey, but from the east, whether it's Babylon or Persia or some other place, it was a very, very long and difficult journey for them to get, to get there. And they were excited. They were excited because they understood that the one whom they were going to see was the savior of the world, the promised king, the Messiah. And they come when they see uh, this great star in the sky that leads them to the place where the Messiah was born. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy, we are told. And they come, they worship at his feet, and they give him particular gifts. They give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, there is, there's always been the question of what do these gifts mean? One of the most ancient interpretations, and I, I do think there, there is something to it, I do believe um, that, it is, that it is sound, is that the gold was given out of a recognition of Christ's kingship. This was very 
fitting. It was very fitting for a, for a king to receive gold. And you remember, as we have uh, looked at very briefly some of the prophecies that have been made about the Lord Jesus Christ, to which this event uh, refers, all of them are in the context of kingship. They're in the context of the Lord Jesus Christ receiving tribute. This is also why we looked at Psalm 72 in our Psalter reading. It's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as one who is a king who will receive tribute. And here the wise men from the east are coming with their tribute and giving gifts that are very fitting for a king to have. Gold like in the days of Solomon. People coming and bringing gifts to a king. Frankincense was given to show his deity. Frankincense in the Old Testament is very, very consistently used with, with in connection with worship. It was a part of the grain offering which was given. So when you would come to worship the Lord, part of the offerings that you would give would always include this kind of incense. And there are, uh, this, is, this is almost the, the exclusive usage of frankincense in the Old Testament. Not quite the exclusive, but almost the exclusive use of frankincense in the Old Testament. And we see the Magi themselves, when they come, they come and they worship this child. These ones who would have been great kings, perhaps, from the east, come and bow themselves down before this little baby to show their faith in the promises of God. And last, myrrh. Myrrh would have been related to the death that the Messiah had to die. Myrrh is particularly associated with death, for instance, in John uh, chapter 19, verse 39. This one is the king. He is God himself. And what may be surprising, not surprising for us as we are familiar with these things, we've heard them a lot, but what may have been surprising is that this Messiah would also have to die. The journey and the gifts which the wise men bring showed their faith. It was the fulfillment of prophecies which had been made even uh, before Moses, recorded by Moses himself, but made even before him, that there would be a light that would arise and that tribute would be brought from every corner of the globe to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now at this point, we've seen the text. We have to recognize the irony and the great contrast that Matthew is pointing out here between Herod and the Jews on the one hand and the Magi on the other. One commentator has recorded it like this. He's commenting on this text said, the apologist, remember that, that Matthew has given to, has written this gospel to give a defense of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to the Jews in particular. The apologist has become the prosecutor. He's become the prosecutor against his own people. Because even, think about this, even these Gentiles got it. Even these Gentiles understood what the Jews could not. And they, they let nothing stop them from bringing all of their gifts to the king. Now, remember something about this, these prophecies that have been fulfilled. They're not about just a few people bringing gifts to the Messiah from one location, from the east. In Isaiah 60, tribute is brought from the entire world. And what Matthew is showing us here is that this, this, this event of these wise men bringing their gifts to Christ is but the beginning of the fulfillment of prophecies that have been continually been fulfilled, even down to our own day. Even down to our own day, Gentiles from the furthest reaches of this world have been coming and bringing their tribute to the king. And 
here's the warning. Even down to this day, there have been those who have been a part of God's people, who have been very privileged, who have been insiders in this regard, who have not received this testimony. And the thing to recognize here is this, that you are more in the place of the Jews than you are in the place of the wise men. Most of you in here, surely, have grown up in the church, or if not in the church, you are a member of the church now. You are the privileged people of God. And like the Jews in the time of Christ, there could be many plausible reasons for your unbelief that you could give. Perhaps you say, politically, things are becoming more and more contrary to Christians. If I stand up for my faith, there could be a day where I could, I could even be prosecuted by the law. The culture is more and more against the Christian faith, just like the Jews. They may have had outwardly plausible reasons for their lack of faith. But notice there were others who, despite the risks, yet came, outsiders even, who understood and who came and still were willing to worship and to give their lives for this coming king. May it not be that there are others, outsiders, those who have never known anything of the scriptures until they sit under the preaching for the first time or hear someone explain the Bible for the first time. They're outsiders who come in and receive these blessings of Christ before you do. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said to the Jews, particularly to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 21. He told them as they were arguing with him and trying to their best to show that he was not the Christ. He said, tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. May this not happen to you. May it not be that people who are far off show a greater zeal for the things of God than for you, who's, who by right have it as your possession. May God grant us the grace to stand firmly for him and to heed this warning that we might not be a part of this same irony. Let's pray. Father, we do pray. Father, we do pray that you would grant us faith here. Lord, we, we confess that, that we have been very privileged in the things that you have given to us. And Lord, we also confess that privilege is not the same as faith. Lord, how humbled we are to see in your word, both in the Old Testament and in the New, how many people who had these privileges, the same ones that we have, did not end up believing. Lord, we pray that you would grant us humble hearts of faith, that we, like the wise men from the East, would come and bring our tribute to the king, and that we would be willing to give up our very lives, denying ourselves as the Lord Jesus Christ has taught us to do, taking up our cross and following him wherever he would leave us. We ask that you would grant this to us for the sake of your own name, that your church might be built up and that your name might be praised. For truly, O oh Lord, you are worthy of all the praise that we could ever give to you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit us at newcovopcssf.com. That's N-E-W-C-O-V-O-P-C-S-S-F dot com. If you'd like to worship with us on Sunday, our service times are 10.30 a.m. and 5 o'clock p.m.